you're listening to Flux Pod. My name is Matthew Perpetua. This is a uh, this episode is a joint presentation with the podcast Junk Filter with Jesse Hawkins. This is our third Dan Pilled episode. Uh, we're basically <laughs> going back and forth between our shows uh, before too long. Before the end of the summer, we'll have Dan Pilled for that much is a promise. That much is a given more Dan Pilled stuff that might go to a brand new feed. We'll see how that goes. But yeah, this is uh, Dan Pilled Summer. We're going to talk about uh, D- Steely Dan from, uh, with, you know, thinking about the summer, thinking about what are the summery songs in the Steely Dan body of work. So that's that'll be fun. Uh, there's one thing that annoys me about this is that when I recorded this, I screwed up my mic setting. So I think I sound bad in it. It sounds like fine. You know, it makes it difficult for me to ever want to hear it again, personally. Anyway, uh, if you like all of this, if you like all of FluxPod, FluxBlog, whatever, you subscribe to the FluxBlog Patreon, patreon.com slash FluxBlog. You get all the bonus Patreon episodes, which, you know, uh, very recently includes a seven-part audio essay series Covering the entire Sonic Youth discography, and then there's just a bunch of other stuff. And I've got I've got other series that'll be coming up on that. I think the next episode's gonna be more of a radio episode. But you know, some good stuff coming. There's some good uh, brand new regular Fluxpod episodes on the way, featuring some fantastic guests. Some of them famous, and some of them not. How's that for a teaser? But anyway, let's get into it. This is Dan Pilled 3, Jesse Hawkins. Welcome to episode 39 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawkins, and my guest for today is a returning champion. His name is Matthew Perpetua, and I've invited him back on because we haven't finished talking about Steely Dan. We decided that we're going to celebrate Dan Pilled Summer by doing a third Dan Pilled episode. And Matthew, welcome back. Oh, so good to be here, Jesse. Where the, where the Dan Pill began. It's so funny because I thought that we had to like capture everything that we had to say about Steely Dan in 90 minutes. But then you invited me on your flux pod because when we were finished recording, there was so much more we had to talk about. So we did Dan Pill 2 on your show. And now here we are doing Dan Pilled 3 because indeed there is still so much more to talk about. And we, and we may yet do more. I don't think there's a yet in this one. I think we are going to do one more. But <laughs> I was trying to be coy. I was trying to be a showman. I've been really pushing the concept of Dan Pilled Summer on Twitter. And... Matthew and I are going to try and paint for you a picture of a Dan-pilled summer. I know that a lot of people got into Steely Dan during the pandemic when we were all confined in our own homes and wishing that we could be vibing with the boys and not able to do so. But now that the world is reopening and people are getting back out there, I'm really hoping to hear a lot more Steely Dan at the parties and the barbecues that I go to. I recently ordered a Steely Dan t-shirt, so I'm well on my way to being out there and Dan-pilling the masses. Ooh, which one? I decided to be really annoying when I'm out and about this summer. I bought a, a very, very nice t-shirt 
that looks like the Joy Division Unknown Pleasures t-shirt, except instead of Joy Division, it says Steely Dan. I'm looking for the double takes from people out there this summer. I don't know whether I'm going to get beaten up. I don't know whether I'm going to get high fives. I have no idea. See, I, I have the other classic uh, switch them up, right? I have the one that's like the parody of the Sonic Youth Goo cover with uh, mm. Donald and Walter in the car. And there's the, the where it would usually say, like, um, you know, we, we stole my friends, my, my group, my, we stole my sister's girlfriend, uh, you, know, you know, that whole spiel. I should have that memorized, but I don't. Um, you know, it's it's lyrics from my old school. But I am a huge fan of Sonic Youth. I'm a huge fan of Steely Dan. So having the merger to, to rep for two fairly different New York City bands at once is, is very nice. On Dan Pill 2, you and I went through a sort of a, a, a list that wasn't in particular chronological order of some of our favorite Steely Dan songs, songs that we didn't get to in the first episode. And when we were done recording Dan Pilled 2, there were still so many more songs that I wanted to talk about. So I'm going to borrow your concept for Dan Pilled 3. We got together and we thought about a baker's dozen of Steely Dan songs that are real summer vibes. And we're going to talk about them chronologically from the very beginning of Steely Dan's career through Donald Fagan's solo album, The Nightfly, and then a little bit about their Y2K uh, return. They're, they're reuniting in the year 2000. Let's all meet up in the year 2000. Exactly. Steely Dan record. So the first song that we're going to do is The Alpha Move, the first song from the first album that Steely Dan did. And it's one of their greatest songs. It's Do It Again. Yeah. It, you know... It felt uh, right that we, we had to come back to this one, even before thinking of, like, let's just do a chronological order. Do it again. We're doing it again. Do It Again is a song that you still hear on the radio, and it's an unusual first single for a new band because it's uh, pushing six minutes. Not like super unusual in the day, though. I think listening to that song the past few days, the thing that really strikes me about it is more than a lot of the other things that they did, it's something that really is like them conforming to the, the trends that existed in rock at the time. Like, you can really connect it to... I hear a lot of zombies in it. I hear, like, you know, time of the season kind of vibes. I hear, like, a bit of Doors, a bit of Santana. It's definitely, like, of its time. Or even maybe, like, nostalgic for, like, maybe two or three years prior to the time. Because that's a 1972 record. It feels a little bit late 60s. But, yeah, it, it feels of its time in a way that a lot of other stuff they've made didn't. Um, I think even like reeling in the years feels like maybe it's even slightly ahead of a curve. You know, just thinking about like what's on Can't Buy a Thrill. Yeah, Can't Buy a Thrill is like one of their more Latin flavored albums where they're sort of the Latin experience in New York really, really um, pulses throughout this record. This song is a mambo. Hmm, that feels right. Yeah. Like a psychedelic mambo. A psychedelic mambo, and uh, I mangled the pronunciation in Dan Pill too. I meant to describe it as New Yorican, oh, that yeah. Puerto Rican New York sound, very jazzy. That opening beat is just an instant grabber. 
Yeah, the lead guitar on this song is just outstanding, too. Very, very memorable. Definitely indebted to the Latin guitar playing. But it has that sort of sitar sound. It's not a sitar, though. No, I think it's just like maybe like lightly modulated in some way. Is that uh, Denny Diaz playing it? I believe so, yeah. That you know, I mean, it's either him or Baxter. I'm not really sure who's who's doing who on that one. But right off the bat, this is their very first song, and it kind of sets the tone for a lot of their music. Where the music grabs you, the music's very catchy, it's very danceable, but the words, when you pay attention to them, are quite dark. It's three verses that each depict compulsive behavior. Right, and the whole idea of the song is that you know you're just doomed to do these things over and over again. Like you learn nothing. It's really kind of like basically the premise of Sopranos. Or, okay, you're just a person who does these bad things over and over again. Every attempt you you have to uh, to change just ends up making you more yourself. It's a very, yeah, it's a very grim song. And the three verses are like three major sins. Like the first verse is, um, depicts a sort of crime and perhaps a drug-related crime world. The second verse is infidelity and perhaps even cuckolding. Um, I was thinking that like I, it was so weird to hear a song about a cuck from way back in 1972. And then the third verse is about gambling and uh, being in Vegas. And one thing that I wanted to ask you, uh, Matthew, is whose perspective is this? Because it sounds like a narrator, but is it the inner voice of a protagonist who's wrestling with demons? Is it the the devil on their shoulder or is it a dispassionate observer what do you think ask me which of these which of these three things have i done if not no Um, (laughs) you know i my instinct as i interpret is like three different guys Hmm. but yeah i mean it's very cinematic i like how like you know you have these scenes like opening in medias res and there's it's a right to where the action hits it really goes into your uh, Steely Dan is, is cinema uh, mindset. Yes, which I will be expanding on again during this program. But um, it's just such a catchy song. I remember being little and hearing it and just being just it had my full attention. And it's a song that has aged very well. Like you hear it all the time. It still gets used in movies all the time. It's just super vibey. It just It's such a strong vibe. also just kind of feels like uh, like a very relaxed kind of chill sleaziness. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think they do that in a bunch of songs, but this might be the one that really perfects that particular feeling. Um, Tell me, has has Tarantino ever used this song? I feel like he must have. It feels right that he did. I don't think he has. Or maybe it was, or maybe it was so. used in some like, uh, you know, w- back when there was like a whole wave of like fake Tarantino movies. Maybe somebody else. I, mean, I just have this very strong feeling of, of a, some kind of Tarantino-ish vibe connected to the song. I remember there was, I don't remember the name of the show right now, but in the wake of The Sopranos, network television was trying to do their own sort of like dark dramas, you know, like still playing within the limits of broadcast television. And I do remember this show that was sort of about a crime family and the commercials for it used Do It Again. And I thought it was a brilliant drop 
in the ads. Like it made you kind of want to watch the show because the music is, uh, again, it's so cinematic that it kind of does have to work for you. You know, if you're making a crime show and you put do it again as the music, like half the work is done for you. Yeah. I mean, it seems that, uh, going back to the Sopranos, it seems like, like Steely Dan, but especially this album had a pretty big impact on David Chase. Mm -hmm. Famously, you have the scene with Tony singing dirty work, which, you know, it's its own themes really connecting to the show. But I feel like a lot of stuff on this record really clicks into the Sopranos and the Sopranos. uh, Yeah, like like the the ethos of the show. Well, Steely Dan was like the thinking man's classic rock band, right? Yeah. The Sopranos is the thinking man's TV show. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's such a great song. And I also love the um the poetry of the the introduction to the third verse, which really does sound like um kind of a Greek chorus in a way. Now you swear and kick and beg us that you're not a gambling man. Then you find you're back in Vegas with a handle in your hand. <laughs> yeah. Yep, just a uh, compulsive behavior. You're just stuck. You can't break your mold. And it's being observed by somebody who's seen it all and knows it all and knows that you're kidding yourself, that you uh, can get around this uh, compulsion that you have. It's not your usual sort of subject for, for a pop song. Man, if you really think about this as being like the first Steely Dan song, you know, the statement of purpose for the band, it really works because you're it's just laying out these three or possibly one uh, glamorous losers and... <laughs> And just having this incredibly cynical uh, view of their lives and the world at large. I was thinking when I was doing the research that the album Can't Buy a Thrill takes its title from a lyric from a Bob Dylan song. But then a few decades later, Bob Dylan names one of his best albums after a Steely Dan song, Time Out of Mind. Yeah. Returning the favor. I wonder if that was on purpose for Dylan or not. You could never really tell with that guy. Yeah, we were wondering when we uh, did uh, Dan Pill 2 what what um, Steely Dan must have thought of Bob Dylan. And I don't know whether the feeling was mutual, but I, I would assume that Steely Dan had a great deal of respect for Dylan. I think yeah, that it was a, certainly if nothing at all, I'm sure him. they respected him. I'm sure they liked his lyrics. Yeah, and Reeling in the Year certainly does sound a little Dylan-ish. Yeah. Well, let's move on to their next record, Countdown to Ecstasy, which I guess is their most disappointing in terms of sales. Really? But it's a pretty good record. Yeah. I, 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 at the time. It's funny my interpretation is that's always been like, is that's like one of the most popular ones. But I guess that's not actually true. It just has a couple songs on it that are just like really beloved, like My Old School and uh, Showbiz Kids and Bodhisattva, which, you know, I think because I've seen them a lot of times, those songs are such like standards in there. There's such a staples of their show that I interpret them as being like, Oh, you can't ever not play these because everyone loves them too much. It's the sort of thing where, you know, Steely Dan may have had the long view. Like I think countdown to ecstasy was considered a commercial disappointment in 1973, certainly compared to can't buy a thrill, which was a massive seller, but all the Steely Dan catalog is like iron, uh, has iron it's like an iron horse the steely dan catalog sells uh pretty solidly to this day certainly when i was uh loading up on steely dan cds i bought all of them you know i didn't just pick up countdown to ecstasy i picked up all seven 
So the song we've chosen for it is King of the World, which is the last song on the record. One of the things that we didn't really get into last time when we were talking about Steely Dan as cinema is there's a real science fiction vibe through a lot of Steely Dan and and science fiction being one of the hardiest genres of cinema. And of course, it's one of the major categories for them. Yeah. And there's a sci-fi vibe throughout a lot of Steely Dan. Um, It's also tied to the paperbacks that Donald Fagan was reading when he was young, but King of the world is, it's a really amazing song. It's, it sort of describes a post-apocalyptic uh, scenario. It seems that we are now in a world that has been ravaged by a nuclear explosion and we're with the last man on earth. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And the whole, the, 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 the line in the course has been the punchline. Any man standing on west of the Rio Grande is the king of the world. As far as I know, it's funny because I've heard this song so many times and only recently did I really actually even pay attention to the words because I just focus so much on the groove of the song. Like so much of this song is really like the drums and like that really cool keyboard part that comes in. Yeah, it's funny when I was listening to that song this morning I was thinking about wow you know there's <laughs> this isn't too far off from Tame Paula now like there's a similar kind of uh, like it's it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very similar sort of psychedelia that's really kind of kind of really built around like the interplay of the tight pocket rhythm and like that synthesizer but also having a good amount of space between them you know you just mentioning Tame Impala, that might explain why I liked them so much when I heard them. Because you're right, it's this sort of like psychedelic rock from outer space uh, thing that Steely Dan did dabble in and minor in. Yeah, it's. I'm sh- I would be very surprised if Kevin Parker wasn't a fan of this particular song. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a. It's a. You know, it's not like a one to one, but it's like you definitely see like you know, a few decades removed that it's part of the same lineage. King of the world would be a great song to be listening to while driving on a hot summer day at top speed. That was one thing I was thinking about. Oh yeah. It it even has that kind of like a little bit of a winding road quality to it. You know, you're kind of driving along the coast or something. And it has that sort of time enough at last uh, feeling to it. Like um, from that, famous twilight zone episode of the you know the man who has the entire library uh, to to go through when he's the last man on earth and then he breaks his glasses and now he's screwed the idea of the last man on earth and the king of the world as far as i know like it's not uh <laughs> there's no major opportunities here it's really uh, defeated 
It's funny how, like, uh, years later on the Nightfly, uh, there's a New Frontier, which is, like, about like, having a party in a bomb shelter. And I think, you know, and that's basically a prequel to this song, because that's from uh, Bagan's childhood in the 50s. Um, but, yeah, this, like, how, you know, this fear of nuclear annihilation is just the, it's just the backdrop of so much of the 20th century. And I think a lot of people... Uh, don't realize that anymore. Like how people just were just going around, especially through from like the 50s through the 80s, just really convinced that this was going to happen. Yes, we're gonna have a Even my childhood in the 80s, um, we had the fear of uh, nuclear war and heightened tensions between the Soviet Union and America. Like That was a state of mind that people were expected to live under for decades. God, even Fagan's so childhood worse is when from it's like that. not even your country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you, you just have to worry about these, these, these maniacs next door just uh, blowing up your neighborhood. Canada is like literally in between Russia and the United States in terms of geopolitical stuff, right? Like the missiles heading towards New York would pass over Canada. Yeah. But, and it's not the only um, sci-fi-ish song that Steely Dan has. I mean, I love the uh, song from the Royal Scam called Sign In Stranger. Oh, one of my favorites, yeah. Which is like an... An other, uh, paints this picture of this otherworldly prison colony and and perhaps even like training base or something like that. I don't know. What, how would you describe Sign In Stranger? Well, Sign In Stranger kind of synthesizes like two ends of their uh, fiction aesthetics, right? So you have like the crime war, but it's happening on another planet where you just sent all your undesirables. You know, it's uh, it doesn't really have like the, the utopian sci-fi quality of you know a lot of things from the era like star trek or like you know it's it's just you know the idea of like nothing changes except for like we just have like spaceships that can take you to another planet but everything else about the dynamics of society are exactly the same (laughs) or just worse (laughs) yeah King of the World is a really good song to recommend to somebody if you want to Dan Pill them because it's also so incredibly well produced. And there's also this very strange element to the song during the instrumental where you hear people talking, but you cannot make out anything they're saying, but you definitely can make out some kind of conversation that's going on. Do you know anything more about this? No, I don't, but it is, it does add to the vibe of it. it like it just, you know, I think it's almost like uh, you, you think about the the setup of the song and it's like, you know, maybe you're hearing people over the radio and you're like, oh, my God, they're alive. Or, you know, it, it just makes it feel like, it, like this distant bit of hope that there's other people around. But I would think that if the song is so paranoid and if you were wasted and you were listening to the song, you'd start thinking that the, that there's voices in your head or that there's some secret message that you're supposed to deduce. You know, I don't necessarily feel like it's like the song is paranoid i think that the concept of the song is paranoid but like the guy in the song like your narrator 
mm-hmm. sounds surprisingly chill about it. Like he's just <laughs> uh, like he's just like this is how it is. You know, I mean, just like that chorus being like a bit of a, a dry joke, you know. He sounds like he's adjusting. It's a new normal. Yeah, he's pretty chill. Uh, you know, I think that this song comes directly from the young Donald Fagan's nightmares of nuclear war. Like, yeah. certainly with the first few Steely Dan records, uh, Fagan is really working out some childhood traumas and some, you know, school days uh, scores that he wants to settle. And, you know, I, I think he was very much in touch with that side of himself. Yeah. But my inclination is I think some of the humor in the song probably derives more from Becker. Yes. It's, that seems like his, like, like Fagan seems more emotional and Baker, uh, I'm sorry, and Becker seems more, you know, the dry, dry joke. It's a gallows humor. Mm-hmm. Um, there is like one live version of this where you can hear uh, Walter before performing it saying like this, this song, this, this gives me nightmares or something to that effect. <laughs> Well, let's move to a much lighter song, although, you know, light lightness is a relative term when it comes to Steely Dan. But we'll move on to Pretzel Logic. And you wanted to talk about this song, uh, which I wasn't as familiar with, and I really enjoyed sitting down and really listening to it for the show. It's uh, the song right after East St. Louis Toodaloo, which is the uh, Duke Ellington cover, called Parker's Band. Yeah, which, of course, is... Uh little love letter to Charlie Parker. love charlie parker i mean it's funny because like you think about it now like you know if you if you made if you had your own band and you wanted to have a tribute to steely dan you could just call it like becker's band um but yeah i mean it's not like they're trying to play a charlie parker song there's not even really horns on the song as far as i can remember just at the end sorry just at the very end there's a sort of a right right horn because it's really about like the that really amazing drum groove and then you also have like that incredible lead guitar part it's Mm -hmm. i think one of some of the best lead guitar playing on any of their records like who did that i'll actually pull up the thing here is that baxter i think it's baxter it's one i listen to quite frequently because it's just a a really uh vibey one it's it has a i love the forward momentum of it uh, the melodies in it are just absolutely fantastic. I mean, it's not one where like the lyrics are going to, or it's not as clever as a lot of the other ones. It's really, you know, I think it's really just fandom, like, which is, I think, uh, definitely another strain of their body of work where ultimately they're like, huge music nerds. There's a bunch of Steely Dan songs that are basically about other music. And, uh, you know, it occurs to me like, uh, I mentioned in one of the other Dan calls, I can't remember which one, that uh, Donald Fagan's uh, book, which is called uh, Eminent Hipsters. Mm-hmm. Do I remember this correctly? That's correct. All right. But yeah, uh, 
a lot of these strains are all kind of like through that book where, you know, he's, a, he's writing essays about movies. He's writing essays about records. He's writing um, about, you know, the, this growing up in the fifties, all these things like, you know, they, 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 he's really kind of giving you a source code of himself there. And like, we'll, we'll definitely get back into this when we talk about the Nightfly a little bit later, but yeah, it's, it is interesting the ways that, you know, he just has these particular obsessions that just kind of bubble up over and over again through the, the career. And um, yeah. So, so what was your impression of, of Parker's band kind of getting into it now? Well, I was, I was kind of stunned to realize cause I had never really slapped on the headphones and really concentrated on this song before, but there's two drummers going at once, one in each ear. There's oh, Jeff Picaro yeah. in one ear and Jeff Gordon in the other ear. Yeah, I think it's the first song they did with Picaro. Or, or, or it's, yeah, it's one of the first. And Picaro was alarmingly young. Like he was basically 19 when he first played with Steely Dan. He was like a, fen- a phenom. And uh, yeah. all of a sudden he finds himself in with the this incredibly elite rock group that uh, has allowed a 19 year old into the studio. <laughs> Fagan still works with really young guys. Like the, the current. Uh, the current lead guitar player they have is this really young dude who's probably in his early twenties. And, uh, he, you know, when he was doing like a tour outside of Steely Dan, he had a band of all like guys who were in their early to mid twenties who are all from, uh, like the Woodstock area. One thing that I was thinking about with Parker's band, cause I'm always, uh, trying to decode their music and looking for references and wondering what this song is really about. And it has to be said that Charlie Parker was a famous junkie and he was one of Donald and Walter's heroes. And here they are, you know, this, these were the Charlie Parker was the guy that uh, Donald and Walter were obsessed with while they were at Bard college to the (laughs) growing annoyance of everyone around them. And, uh, and then when they hit the big time, they do a big (laughs) song about Charlie Parker, but I detected some veiled heroin references in the song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they kind of have to be there. We will spend a dizzy weekend smacked into a trance. <laughs> yep. Which is Dizzy Gillespie. They're alluding to Dizzy Gillespie, but smack is in there too. Me and you will listen to a little bit of what made the preacher dance. And, yeah. you know, they say, take a little piece of Parker's band. So I was wondering whether Parker's band is a cute euphemism for a controlled substance. Huh. I'll allow it. <laughs> because, uh, you know, I, I detected in there. Uh, and Steely Dan, of course, were, um, what, what would you call them? They were like functioning addicts, I suppose, right? Like if they were dabbling around in drugs, it didn't affect their. I don't know was necessarily. Becker, absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, it doesn't seem to get in the way of their proficiency. I mean, it's a really, really, it's really short too. It's like two two minutes and 40 seconds or something, but it packs so much detail into it. Yeah, it's a very busy song. And yeah, and it's just even having the two drummers, it, it's just the rhythm of it is just very driving and very, uh, it's, 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 you know, it's not like the most complicated polyrhythm in the world, but it's a polyrhythm. Um, and it also yeah. has that, uh, that, that um, surprising thing because it's your basic, um, you know, your basic uh, music structure, I mean, your basic jazz structure, but then the midsection flies around in these very, very unusual chord progressions. We will spend a dizzy weekend into a trance. 
You know, it's funny because because it, it's it's definitely a song about jazz, but it's such a rock song in in, in very interesting ways. Um, it's really just kind of I mean I guess it's doing the trick they do a lot, but uh, in this kind of more like concentrated way of taking a rock song, a standard rock thing, and just bringing uh, the complexity of jazz into it. Mm-hmm. Like just changing up the little things that just, you know, basically adding all the spice to it. You know, the, the, the last time we did this, we were talking about um, Chain Lightning and Chain Lightning being basically a blues song that's modified into jazz chords. Um, oh, by the way, uh, you know, this kind of came up after um, after uh, we recorded this and the episode came out some reader or listener i don't know how to describe them uh you know a person in the audience pointed out that that song uh is very plausibly understood as being from the perspective of two guys uh who are like ex-nazis looking back on like how fun all the old nazi rallies were yes extremely (laughs) grim song and i think like i was just being like ah i think it's just kind of nonsense (laughs) no i'm an idiot I was not. I was not necessarily picking up what they were putting down there, but I, I think that is probably a pretty correct. Uh, I know interpretation of that song. Just the most um, cruel sense of humor. I, I buy that uh, that analysis for sure. Let's move on to one of my very favorite Steely Dan songs. A song that I've become re obsessed with in all this Dan pilling I've been doing to myself and to others. This is from Katie Lied. It's basically the feeling of a Dan Pilled summer. It's bad sneakers. Five names that I can hardly stand to hear Including yours and mine and one more chip who isn't here I can see the ladies talking how the times are getting hard And that fearsome excavation on Magnolia Boulevard Yes, I'm going insane And I'm laughing This song is your life goal. Like, if you want to have a Dan Pilled summer, you have to get out there in your bad sneakers and a pina colada, my friend. Well, the thing that I was thinking about when you when you first brought up the idea of, like, you know, Dan Pilled summer is an aspirational goal. Like, this song really gets at a thing where it's like, this song is mostly about being in Los Angeles and hating Los Angeles. Yeah. And I think one of the, the things that people can bring to their own Dan Pilled summer is you don't have to be happy. You don't have to enjoy everything, but you should just kind of roll with it. And that's definitely kind of where this song is. <laughs> um, you know, you're just there. Maybe, you're, you know, you're a little annoyed, but you're also a little bemused. You're, you know, the whole chorus is kind of flashing back to, you know, New York City where you maybe weren't more happy there, but you still have like a, a romantic notion of it. I read one analysis of this song that suggested that it's from the perspective of an outpatient. Really? Yeah, what that it's somebody. The, what was the, it's, the math on that one? Well, it's just uh, somebody who had been in some form of confinement who's now out and about again. He's got a, you know, he's back out on the street, and 
um, you know, he was going insane. He was laughing at the frozen rain. But uh, I, when, when seen... are they going to take me home? You know, like, but now he's out and about. Yeah. I've also read that, like, the first couple lines of the song where it's like, um, oh, God, help me out here. It's like the five names I, I don't want to hear, include, including you and me. Like, yeah. That's just like referring to the band. <laughs> yeah. Because at that time they were a, a quintet. And this was the time where they shaved off the 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 extra players and started hiring in studio musicians too. Yeah, so I think maybe it's a little bit of a, a wink at like that kind of burnout. Let's stop doing that. Uh, yeah, I also like a lot of the the references to places in LA in this are like really like not glamorous at all. Like they they mentioned like Magnolia Boulevard going up into yeah. like the valley, and you know north hollywood you know that that whole like route uh like would it be especially not glamorous in the 70s no like 1975 also was maybe like the lowest point of new york city right like that was when oh yeah the city went bankrupt i think the 80s the early 80s probably a little worse but um yeah yeah it's like yeah i think both cities are kind of like in a bad place yeah like this is the uh, New York City that Carlito's Way is set in, like nineteen seventy five. Just like yeah. grim. I love the um, sort of the Chai Lights electric sitar intro too. It's just it just grabs you immediately. I'm a huge fan of the Chai Lights. Hmm. Uh, another great thing about this song is uh, Michael McDonald's presence, oh. where he kind of comes in. Uh, it, like I think a lot of the best uses of Michael McDonald and Celia Dan songs. It's not really like, and here's and like, ladies and gentlemen, Michael McDonald. He just <laughs> kind of sneaks in. He's there for to give you an effect. He warms up the song. Yeah, you know, I, I think like he's. It's a little more obvious that he's here, but like I think my favorite use of him is on "Time Out of Mind" on Gaucho, when you know, like my favorite part of the song is the instrumental uh, bridge, and then into the return of the chorus, and that's when you finally get Michael McDonald, and. You know, he's just there to like push the song up a notch to kind of make it feel even more uh, sublime. Pure vibing, pure walking around, having a good time in the streets, hanging with your boys, you know, got a large sum of money to spend. Like, this is the goal. This is the yeah. goal. And I think that, you know, anybody who wants to have a Dan Pilt summer needs to put this song on their on their, uh, on their Spotify and, and, and get out there and live your dream. Live the dream of the boys. <laughs> I, gu- I guess we should all get pina coladas to, uh, as part of a Dan Pilt summer experience. Definitely. Like, I'm definitely getting on my Steely Dan t-shirt and having a pina colada in my bad sneakers, too. I even have yeah. bad sneakers ready to go. Do, do you remember the last time you had a pina colada? Because I can't remember. I know It's I've been a while. It it's been a while. It's been a while. Um, I mean, I, I guess, like, the, I would probably go for the, uh, the Cuervo. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I would go for the, the Hey 19. Is this a good time to talk about Jeff Picaro? Because I think that he's a very significant member of the rotating team of studio musicians. 
he's the drummer on nearly every track on Katie Lied. I think he's. I think it's everything except for the one with uh, Hal Blaine. Yeah, but um, I mean, he is so precise all through this record, like so muscular, so precise. And, um, you know, he didn't wind up becoming a permanent member of Steely Dan, but, you know, he's a major player throughout their career. Yeah, I mean, he would be more famous for being just like, um, I mean, he was a a major session player through the 70s and 80s. Uh, He was also a member of uh, Toto. Mm -hmm. And he adapted the Purdy Shuffle for Mm -hmm. his classic line, um, his drum line on Rosanna is... I was reading about it. It's apparently an adaptation of the Purdy Shuffle and the beat on the Led Zeppelin song "Fool in the Rain." Oh yeah, which is yeah, that, and that's, that's such an ambitious thing to do—to merge Purdy and Bonham. Yeah, I also read that Jimmy Page said that the greatest guitar solo he's ever heard in his life is the one from "Reeling in the Years." Oh yeah, yeah, I've I've seen that too. Right, um, that makes sense. And I feel like that's also game respect game because you know he's yeah he was also a session guy. He would he he because even beyond being in Led Zeppelin, he would have very high standards for such things. As I was looking at Jeff Picaro's resume, um, like it's incredible all it's these incredible every tracks. Every major he, figure from that era. Yeah, and every song that I was obsessed with as a kid is <laughs> Jeff Picaro's The Drummer on it. A Lowdown by Boz Skaggs is like one of the most technically precise uh, drum lines I've ever heard in my life, and that's a 22-year-old kid named Jeff Picaro. I think he drummed on all of Silk Degrees, right? I mean, yes, yeah, that, I believe that's so. Such a great record, and you know, definitely fitting into like the greater Steely Dan universe. Yeah, like he he just for Porcaro's um, presence, all of a sudden, uni- it's like a grand unifying theory for me of all this music that I like. It's like, oh, it's because he was the drummer. He's the drummer on the song Thriller too. Yeah, he, he drums on, I think, uh, about half of Thriller and then some other later. He's, he plays on Heal the World. Yeah, but he died in the early <laughs> he played, 90s. He played drums on Arthur's Theme by Christopher Cross. Yeah. <laughs> He's all over the Nightfly, too. But um, he died at age 38 of a heart attack, which was officially because of an adverse reaction to a pesticide that he was using. But... The autopsy revealed a heart problem that may have been related to his cocaine use, and traces of cocaine were in his system. He had supposedly quit using it, but maybe that's how much he was doing. Yeah, I've read that he was just a super prolific uh, cocaine dude, just a major cokehead. But I think you know, I think he was just kind of living the lifestyle that existed for you know successful musicians in that moment of time. He's just kind of a you know, his body just didn't take to it the same. A lot of other people who just kind of emerged unscathed. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking like, you know, he's a 19 year old kid drumming on pretzel logic and his life is already more than half over. God. But the light that burns twice as bright burns half as long as uh, they said in Blade Runner. <laughs> but yeah, what a great drummer. And he's just so every song that he plays on every Steely Dan song is just so great. Let's move on to one of our favorite Steely Dan records and and a couple of songs that I can't believe we haven't even talked about yet. 
This is from the Royal Scam, and this is the first song from the record, Kid Charlemagne. While the music played, you walk by candlelight. Go to San Francisco nights. We're the best in town. Just by chance, you cross the diamond with the pearl. You turned it on the world. That's when you turn the world around. But now we're getting into just the incredible beats that Steely Dan had on the on their last three records. Like they're just they're just prime examples of the uh, power of uh, percussion. Yeah, they're just using alpha drummers from that point on because, like you know, they've got the money, they got the time. So yeah, you you have Bernard Purdy, you have Jeff Caro, you have uh, Rich Morota. He plays on Peg and Time Out of Mind. Uh, you know, and even up to this day, uh, their current drummer is astonishing, uh, Keith Carlock. Yeah, and Keith Carlock starts playing with them in, I think he, he performs on all of uh, Everything Must Go and has been the drummer ever since. And he's played on a lot of Donald's more recent material. He's probably the best drummer I've ever witnessed. Yeah, Kid Charlemagne is based, not not officially, but unofficially, um, is a is basically a biography of the life of this um, drug dealer who was a real person in the counterculture, like a real central figure uh, whose name was Osley Stanley or Owsley Stanley. He was a chemist. He produced LSD in Berkeley, California. He was the main supplier in the Bay Area of LSD, but he was also curiously an audio engineer for the Grateful Dead. Oh, I forgot that part. That's right. He apparently designed the Grateful Dead's logo, the 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 skull with the thunderbolt or whatever. Like oh, Scully, Scully is that his name? Yeah, they call he, it Scully. Well, he he came up with Scully, um, and his. So Fagan says that this song takes place between the mid sixties and nineteen seventy six, and it it uh, describes the, the you know this life on the run for this chemist whose entire life was about getting arrested and getting his labs busted. Opening line of the song is one of my favorites. This is uh, those opening lines of anything. Like while the music played, you worked by candlelight. Those San Francisco nights, you were the best yes. in town. Yeah. I, I like that. It's, it's just kind of a tribute really that the, the way they phrase this, um, it's all just kind of talking about him. Like, you know, <laughs> Hey, I just want you to know how cool you were. I mean, there's also <laughs> the, the line that uh, you were a champion in their eyes. And um, and that was that part was sampled uh, by Kanye West in the song Champion. Uh, one of the uh, most high That's profile right. uh, Steely Dan samples. Did you realize that you were a champion in their eyes? Yes, I did. So I packed it up and brought it back to the creed. Just a little something to show you how we live. Everybody want it, but it ain't that serious. Mm-hmm. That's that ish. So if you gon' do it, do it just like this. I was watching a lot of videos of people listening to Steely Dan for the first time and getting Dan pilled on video. <laughs> and um, I was kind of on a falling into a rabbit hole of all these videos of people who were just putting it on to give it a chance, like 
to, you know, cause their, their viewers wanted them to listen to the song and their eyes just exploded out of their heads. A couple of these people, uh, their eyes just bulged out when they realized that, um, this Steely Dan song is where that Kanye sample comes from. Like one guy had to like hit pause and then just sit there for 20 <laughs> seconds with this stupefied look on his face. And he was like, for real, for real. <laughs> I, I wish I ever had an experience of listening to things that was as dramatic as some of the, the people on YouTube. <laughs> I mean, yeah. they're really playing to the cheap seats. Well, it's, it's, it's the, it's the genre they're working in, but yeah. Uh, I, I don't doubt the, uh, the, the the response, the the, dr- the dramatization. <laughs> yeah, for me, it's very gratifying to see people in their mid twenties uh, having their minds blown by Steely Dan. Um, when my entire mid twenties was people like shoving me into a <laughs> you know into a garbage can for saying that I like Steely Dan. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, and it, it's such a groover. It is just such a. It is a genuinely funky song i mean you i mean you got that purdy you got oh god it's it's such a hot song it's definitely one of the most r&b songs they have um also uh in more recent years i i have a, a fun misheard lyric where sometimes it just sounds like uh get along tim chalamet yes <laughs> i've made a few tim chalamet uh, puns on twitter <laughs> But um, also, um, this is a key sort of, you know how the the music for dads uh, knock against Steely Dan? This is a very key one, I think, um, because it's just such a, it's such a perfectly conceived song and it's so catchy and it's like, um, but this is what I'm getting at, is that um, I got a real Breaking Bad feel. I was just going to say that, like this song now, because you have the parts at the end where he's kind of describing the lab and it's like, you know, you clean this mess up or we'll all end up in jail. Those test tubes and the scale, get them all out of here. And you realize like, oh, this song now would just be about like a Walter White, like meth cook. And it certainly yeah. wouldn't be like Walter White. It would just be like what a meth cook, a meth cook would most likely actually be like. Well, here's the other key thing that reminded me of Breaking Bad is on the hill, the stuff was laced with kerosene, but yours was oh, kitchen yeah. clean. Everyone stopped to stare at your Technicolor motorhome, and Walter White was in an RV. Wow. Yeah, and, and famously, a very clean product. Yes, and on Breaking Bad, Walter White was hailed for his uh, purity of his product. But there's one episode of Breaking Bad where over the breakfast table during the opening credits, Walter White tells his son that he was a big fan of Steely Dan. And he says, in terms of pure musicianship, I would put them up against any current band you can name, which is a total dad <laughs> thing that dads say about Steely Dan. So I just love the fact that Walter White is a Steely Dan fan, and that Kid Charlemagne has echoes of Breaking Bad. I mean, echoes from 30 years before Breaking Bad. But to me, it sort of drives this thing home about dads and Steely Dan and sort of dads doing bad things. And it also reminds me of one of my very favorite tweets of all time um, by a guy named Ian Barr, who I've actually been following for a while. He's just a guy on Twitter. But he wrote one of the funniest tweets I've ever read in my life. And uh, this is it. It says, once came home to find my dad listening to Steely Dan in a dim living room, drinking Kahlua, turning to me to exclaim, nothing but talent. (laughs) 
So we pick another song from uh, this record, The Royal Scam. Uh, well, it's actually you chose this one. It's The Fez. We talked about The Fez briefly, but we didn't listen to it. We didn't talk about the song itself. It's really one of my very favorite Steely Dan songs. drum track by Bernard Purdy is just killer. The Fez is credited to, to Donald Fagan, Walter Becker, and Paul Griffin, who is the organ yeah, player on just, the song. I think he just basically had a cool riff, and they were like, hey. Fagan said that the Fez was recorded using a rhythm chart, but that there were a few bars missing, and Paul Griffin, the keyboard player on the day, came up with a nice little melody, so they decided to include him in the writer's very gracious of them. It's as casual as that. It's a wonderful song. It's unusual from the Steely Dan catalog because there aren't a lot of words. And in it's it. utterly mysterious too. And that's I think when I think of this song, I think about the the ambiguities of it. Um, well, even just that the, that the, that central phrase, I won't do with I won't do it without the fez on, and you know it could be the hat. Uh, it's a slang for a condom. Then just thinking about in either case, it sounds perverse, right? I, I mean, I think it's even more perverse yeah. if like he's not going to do it without a hat on, like he's got a hat fetish. But what I love about how perverse the song is, hold on, I'm just going to call up the words, what few words there are. What I love about the Fez is that, you know, I'm never going to do it without the Fez on. That's what he keeps insisting throughout the song. And then in the last lyric, he says, don't make me do it without the Fez on. <laughs> Yeah. Is he being coerced it's, it's now? Just, yeah, it's just a fun little joke of a song, you know? I, I like it I like it being completely mysterious. I like that it's it's probably some weird in joke that Walter and Donald have and they just wrote it into the song, like who cares? But in nineteen seventy six, safe sex wasn't really a common concept. I guess that's one thing that's bizarre about the song. Like there was such a thing as um as condoms and protection, but it was like, you know, this song in the eighties could have been, it could have been an anthem for safe sex. <laughs> right. But of, of course people would have to be aware of this like obscure, uh, slang term for condoms. Uh, I mean, also, you know, Fez, it's kind of connected to Jimmy hats. It's a great song though. It's, it's, it's kind of a sleeper on the Varel scam. Like it's not a song that people, um, it's the last song on side one. Yeah. I, mean, I like it kind of going between sign and stranger and green earrings and like Haitian divorce. I feel like in that whole run of songs, it has, this, there is this kind of like a real seediness to it. It's, it's re- uh, even relative to other Steely Dan songs. There's just a real kind of a gross vibe, that whole run in the middle of the Royal scam. In relation to the rest of the songs on the Royal Scam, I guess it's the quote unquote throwaway track. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I mean, wasn't it released as like a double A side with Kid Charlemagne? I feel like something like that. It, 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 it's a, maybe. I, I think it got some radio play. 
moving on from the Royal Scam, another sleazy sex song uh, is I Got the News mm-hmm. off Asia. Yeah. If you're having a Dan Pilled Summer, it's got to be some of the hornier Steely Dan songs. <laughs> uh, yeah, I Got the News is one that it, I think similar to, I was saying with King of the World, and I think my experience of Do It Again is one where I, I think I typically just kind of tune out the lyrics a little because I'm so focused on the drums. <laughs> and I think the, the, the real uh, like the real focus of I Got the News is the piano. Uh, it's by mm-hmm. Victor Feldman. It's their incredible performance by uh, session player Victor Feldman. Um, there's a real brightness to that piano sound, and it's all kind of syncopating off the drums. Yeah, the, the lyrics are just, uh, <laughs> you're a mark, you're a screamer, you know how to hustle. Daddy is a rare millionaire. Yeah, it's yeah, it's just kind of, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of like low-key lewd. Spanish kissing. What does that, what, what, what does that mean relative to French kissing? What is Spanish kissing? I'm not sure if I've... Well, I the jury is out on what Spanish kissing is because I've heard that it's either fellatio or conolingus. Okay, yeah, all right. But it but the lyric is Spanish kissing. See it glisten. You came raging, love rampaging. Yeah, you know what? I'm thinking it's it's the it's the fellatio. It's hard, uh, you know. You're you're right either way, but I read that Walter Becker once referred to the lyrics in this song as quote pointlessly obscene unquote oh no that's actually i'm sorry that's, that's not him that's uh the i actually have it right in front of me uh the the, the well, it's it's from the uh the asia liner notes it's actually uh credited to, to the person who wrote the liner notes michael Falan. and he like for i got the news it says i got the news a manhattan jukebox thump along serves as a vehicle for the koi piano pianistics of Victor Feldman, whose labors are capriciously undermined by Walter Becker's odd Django-esque guitar and a pointlessly obscene lyric. And yeah, I feel like I could, oh, I was I misinformed. Like Michael Palin is actually like really <laughs> nailed it there. <laughs> that That is kind of the whole deal, isn't it? You know, it's a testament to just what an incredible album Asia is, that this is the quote-unquote weakest song on the record. It's a throwaway from Steely Dan that would be a career highlight for like 90% yeah. I mean, of I, I mean, I've always really liked I Got the News. because um, I, mean, I, like, I like an up-tempo song. I'm a real sucker for an up-tempo yeah. number. Um, I like the way it fits into things. I mean, if I could actually, if I could do anything, if I could change anything about Asia... I would put I got the news immediately after Peg and you know just kind of switch the places the places if I got the news home at last. And this is another song also where Michael McDonald comes on strong and the song just t- goes into the stratosphere when he shows up because the drumming uh, sort of starts to double time a little bit and then Michael McDonald's voice comes on.
such such a New York song. It's it's funny. Like I think we mentioned this in the pre- in the previous episode, um, how they were kind of like really going hard on LA stuff for a while, but by the time they got to Asia, it really is like New York is on their mind, even if they're not there. So much of the, the songs in that record are just so clearly rooted in New York. I mean, certainly Black Cow and uh, Peg and I Got the News. Yeah, Home at Last. That, that said, J- uh, Josie and Deacon Blues are prime suburb songs. Just one more thing about I Got the News is that this was the one song that was not included in the VH1 Classic Albums episode on Asia. Because they talk about every song on this record for a few minutes, but then they just throw I Got the News in over the end credits, which like, is too bad. Yeah, it's like it, it makes I Got the News a little more mysterious. It's nobody's favorite song on the record, but it is such a good song. Yeah. Fantastic live one. I mentioned Keith Carlock before. Like watching Keith Carlock play that song oh. really pushes it up a bit too. Let's segue over to uh, the other great song on Asia that we haven't talked about, which is another great summer jam, which is Home at Last. Another great Bernard Purdy production. Um, if you, if, you know, we just mentioned that uh, VH1 uh, special and one of the most memorable parts of that is Bernard Purdy talking about how he would just show up to sessions with a sign saying, you done hired the hit maker, Bernard Pretty Purdy, which is the most alpha move anyone could do. <laughs> but yeah, he talks about how the, you know, he gave them the Purdy shuffle. You know, and the Steel, Steel, which he invented. Like that is a drum pattern that Bernard Purdy yeah. invented. And Steely Dan love a shuffle, but the, above all else, a Purdy shuffle. very complex i mean the, the basic description of the purdy shuffle is it's triplets over a halftime backbeat you know it when you hear it yeah. for sure and he plays this specific signature on the next two songs we're talking about home at last and babylon yeah. sisters and there's a, such a specific feel to how he plays i mean i think and I, I mean i've heard other people perform these songs but they just don't give you the thing that he gives you it's just that he has that kind of swing that just cannot be imitated. And then, and Chuck Rainey's bass line on the song, along with Bernard Purdy, it's just so yeah. tight. Oh my god! I mean, just looking at like the like, well, who plays on this song? So you got Purdy, you got Rainey. The guitar is Larry Carlton. Uh, Walter plays the solo. Victor Feldman also on this one on piano. You know. Fagan is playing synthesizer and singing. It's yeah, it's just a, you know, on a record where you just have like nothing but a listers. Home at last really stands out as being a a, a real highlight. I've read some very uh, highfalutin interpretations of home at last that it's based on the Odyssey by Homer and it's a song about Ulysses returning home by sea from a battle. But that's never what I picked up from it. I always thought of it as a song that really exemplifies what Asia kind of is, which is New Yorkers stranded in Los Angeles pining for a return. Like it, Asia is such a New York record, but it was predominantly recorded in Los Angeles and uh, 
it is all about New York in many ways. But this is the song to me that just reflects the homesickness of those guys. Just wishing they were back. So speaking there. of a, a good interpretation, uh, I want to read this uh, one kind of quick paragraph that my friend Sean T. Collins wrote about this song over on his Patreon. You know, Sean uh, Patreon.com, Sean T. Collins. Uh, I'll, I'll just read it in full because it, it's pretty brief, but it's it's so sharp. In rock nerd circles or among those who've been Dan pilled, the Asia album cut Home at Last is probably best known for its use of the Purdy Shuffle. Drummer Bernard Pretty Purdy's immaculate backbeat. But I find myself fixated on the chorus, which consists of four lines. While the danger on the rocks which has surely passed, still I remain tied to the mast. Could it be that I have found my home at last? Home at last. The image of Odysseus and Elysseus coming home to feel comfortable in bondage is a powerful one. He's able to feel the temptation of the sirens, but not act on it. There is indeed a siren song quality to yearning for something you are simultaneously preventing yourself from striving for acting upon something where you love the call of it, but you also love the ropes that are preventing you from heeding that call. What a complex emotion to pour into the song with a drummer who's like a hero right out of Homer. Yeah, Shanti Collins, one of the best in the biz. That's great. But yeah, I, I, yeah, he said it. That's <laughs> Well, sticking with the Purdy Shuffle and moving on to Gaucho, let's talk about the very first song on Gaucho, which is Babylon Sisters. Now, here is your, uh, your Steely Dan cinema. This is uh, deliberately written to be an L.A. noir. You know, what I was thinking when we were getting ready for this show, and, you know, I've still been thinking about cinema. I was thinking that side one of Gaucho in particular is basically La Dolce Vida. Expand on that one. It's about the emptiness at the heart of a hard partying lifestyle. Like it's a, it's the feeling of um, La Dolce Vida by Fellini is that, you know, it's this, um, it's the glamorous life, but there's an emptiness to it. There's a soul sickness to it. There's a feeling that, um, you know, this is a game that for younger people and you're still in it, which is, you know, how Steely Dan, I mean, that's an argument that Steely Dan was, would refine even further in the year 2000. The idea of, you know, this this decadent world that they're sort of traveling through. It's funny, through. like, when, when you were just describing uh, how, like, these first three songs are like the Vulture Lita, um, <laughs> uh, I realized, oh, the person who has been mining this in the more recent past to great success is The Weeknd. These are The Weeknd's themes. Definitely. I'm sure The Weeknd loves Steely Dan. I, wish, I would hope that he does. They have a lot in common. They, they could at least have a really good conversation about some things, you know, commiserate, like him and Donald. This is probably Donald Fagan's finest performance as a vocalist is on Babylon Sisters. So powerful. I always love that opening line. It's one of my, it's another one of my favorite opening lines of all time. The drive west on sunset to the sea. Drive west on sunset to the sea. Turn that jungle music down Just until we're out of town This is no one night stand It's a real occasion Close your eyes and you'll be there 
Yeah, it just paints a picture, and you feel like you're in the car. Yeah, you're just you're just that's what I love about it so much. Into the space of both the song and the whole album. It's you know just a. I think like that like that the art of just having the perfect opening line. It's it's not easy, but they, they absolutely got it on this one. And I mean, you know, I mentioned just before that Kid Charlemagne has a great opening line, and that's also the opening song of that record. But you know, I don't think like that song, like the opening line, like speaks to the rest of the record. Whereas I think that kind of like beautiful nihilism is like the whole point of Coucho. Matthew, who are the Babylon sisters? That I couldn't tell you. Do, do you happen to know the, the real answer to that one? I don't. I don't. I think that it's open to interpretation. I've heard all kinds of things. I've heard that the Babylon sisters are black women, young black women, and it's a man who's involved uh, you know, with these two women. I've heard that the Babylon sisters are temptation, that this man is a married man, and he's with a much younger woman. Uh, maybe he's even with two much younger women. And this is all stuff that's at the risk of his actual relationship. And he's a man who understands the consequences of his actions, um, that he's going to destroy everything, but really he's going to destroy himself. The yeah. Most. I'm looking at this right now and it, it seems like a pretty good guess that the Babylon sisters, so fine, so young, tell me I'm the only one. It sounds like they're sex workers of some kind. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're strippers, maybe, you know, whatever. And that, you know, he knows that he's, uh, he's, that this is not good for him, but he's going to do it anyway. Here come the Santa Ana winds again. The Santa Ana winds are the hot winds that dry out the vegetation and create the kindling for forest fires in Southern California. Yeah. It it really is like this kind of beautiful, bleak song. (laughs) Cause the whole feel of it is really, um, it has a very relaxed uh there's a gentle quality to it you know it's it's very groovy it has uh like the really beautiful backup vocals on it uh there's a one there's there's a whole bunch of backup singers on this uh Leslie Miller, mm-hmm. Patty Austin, Tony Wine, uh Lanny Groves, Diva Gray, Gordon Grody the whole whole chorus of people on this one in a career full of incredible performances by female backup singers, this is my favorite. And I would say the word that I've used to describe Babylon Sisters is faultless. <laughs> is is that a play on the fault lines in uh, California? Uh, not intentionally, but maybe subconsciously. I just think that this song is perfect. So the other song we wanted to get to from Gaucho uh, – Something that's a song that's really been uh, big for you in the recent past is uh, Glamour Profession. These days, I would say that Glamour Profession is my absolute number one Steely Dan song. Oh, wow. So, so we're, we're both guys where our favorite is on Gaucho. Like, my favorite is Time Out of Mind. There's only one song between them on the record. This is another Steely Dan as cinema song. Um, this is a series of sequences to me, the song. And it's an important factor in any Dan Pilled summer is the nighttime. And this song is just, it just feels like nighttime. Local boys, 
I read that they had actually written the music for this song much earlier, but that the words came out as a direct result of their actual experiences in sort of decadent partying lifestyle. Like their going to parties in LA and in the music world um, informed what they had to say in the song, but that the music itself had been written earlier. Yeah. I mean, there's, I mean, I've, I kind of take the song as kind of being kind of lightly comedic. You know, it's definitely mm-hmm. kind of I, I can imagine this one, you know, we, we've talked about like, well, what if this this Steely Dan song was a movie like this one's definitely kind of a, a wry comedy. You know, the whole the openings part is just about, you know, the drug dealer meeting up with uh, a basketball star named Hoops McCann outside of like uh, what I imagine would be the forum in Los Angeles, you know. And then, you know, he's just going to other spots. He's off to Barbados. He's like, he, he's just kind of having this glamorous lifestyle of bringing drugs to celebrities and kind of glomming on to their lives. So here's something I want to drill down because I've always been saying Steely Dan is cinema and I've always been backing it up. But or I've been trying to back it up, I mean. But Glamour Profession is a really great example of what I've been arguing, Steely Dan's relationship to cinema. And I want to just talk for a minute about the grand undefined term of film criticism, which is mise-en-scene. This literally translates from French as placing on stage. This is the general idea of, of what you're watching when you're watching a movie. You could describe it as the placement of actors, the setting, the environment. And in, and in film production, mise-en-scene reflects the relationship between the director and the production designer or the art director. So we're talking about who's in the shot, where are they in the shot, what's in the shot with them. And it's all to convey the way that the scene feels to the viewer. So you've seen movies where you get a real feeling for what it's like to be in the room. Like you watch a movie like Body Heat and you feel sweaty while you're watching the movie because the movie is conveying to you this long, hot summer. Um, and to me, this song is pure mood. Like you really do feel like you're out on the town at night with these, you know, sketchy people, this drug dealer to the stars who's having a great night. There are all these little details like uh, the Eurasian bride and the Szechuan dumplings and the celluloid bikers and the boat rides in the daytime and partying at night. You also get a sense of like there's some stress, you know, because he's just, he's juggling a bunch yeah. of stuff. It's it's it almost feels like you know he's a little over it. <laughs> yeah. Well, for me, like the key line in the song is "Living hard will take its toll," which is the the part of the chorus, which I misheard when I was little. I always thought that they were singing "Living hard will take it slow." <laughs> quite quite the opposite. Um, no, it's not. But when I was little and naive, I was like, you know, we're living hard, so we'll take it slow. Like that still felt to me like an excessive lifestyle to me. Like we have to calm down. We have to slow down. We have to, you know, this is uh, this is the world of drugs. And even as a little kid, I was able to figure yeah. that out. You know, <laughs> like things are not so great, even though this song is a pure vibe and pure mood. It sounds great. It's so much it's fun. It's the disco but- uh, life in the fast lane. It's, I mean, it's definitely yeah, the most disco but, song know. they have. It's definitely coming out of that. It's still kind of disco era, like uh, 79, 80. You know, and also it's going back but to this is what the, I'm- uh, Dan Pilled Summer, Illegal Fun, Under the Sun. Mm-hmm. That's that's one of the core values. Illegal Fun, Under the Sun, summer. boys. 
And and again with La Dolce Vita, there's this melancholy among the partying lifestyle. I think one of the other poignant moments is I drove the Chrysler, watched in the darkness while they danced. Like that's you could see Marcello Mastroianni watching this young woman dancing at a party at night in the yeah. shadows, you know. And remember that Steely Dan were always the boys in the corner at parties at Bard College, not talking yeah. to anyone quietly judging everyone and resenting people for having a good time. And so here they are on this elevated scale. Like this is the music world. This is the celebrity world. They're at a coked out party in Barbados or in LA. They wish they were somewhere else. Like, and you really feel it. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And pointing out that line is really crucial because it's like, no, this is an outsider. This guy sounds like he's an insider. He's connected in the world, but he's only in this world so much as that he is valuable as the person who brings them the drugs. And it's also a very epic scale of drugs. Like there's a guy coming in from Colombia, Bogota, Jive Miguel, you know, like this is a major, I get the feeling from the song that this is a drug dealer who's supplying this huge party with a huge amount of cocaine. Oh yeah. Yeah. What a great song. God, that, that, the, the, the drum, since we're really focusing on the drummers, worth mentioning that this is Steve Gadd. And Steve Gadd also plays on yeah. the title track of Asia, which is considered by many to be one of the most complicated drum performances anyone could pull off. Uh, this, I was and, watching and, some, and like the, this is a, oh, probably a more easy groove, but he's this is a very confident drummer and that confident strut really carries through to the feeling of the song. But, you know, as in terms of Steely Dan as cinema, this is the, I mean, this is really the ultimate version of that. Like you really do. And it's got a length that you would as- associate with cinema too. I mean, it's most pop songs are three minutes. This is seven and a half or something like that. Like it really paints a picture. It really feels like you're, you're in the car with these people. Music can't always achieve that kind of cinematic who, feeling. Who would you hire to direct the Glamour Profession movie? Great question. I don't know. Maybe Abel it, Ferrara. It seems very – I could imagine Paul Thomas Anderson doing okay with Glamour Profession. But I guess that's playing to strengths we already yeah. know he has between uh, – Yeah, I mean, and, and in the 80s, we got some you know literature and cinema that was sort of about the cokey L.A. world, like that film Less Than Zero. Yeah. I could also imagine a Michael Mann version of Glamour Profession. Oh, my God. There, That's it. It's Michael Mann doing Glamour Profession. But this is the sound of California at night. This is the sound of going back into the hills at 4 a.m. I just love it. Makes, and this, I, yeah, it really makes me miss L.A. Just, just thinking about this song now. Yeah. And you, as you were saying, like this is this album Gaucho is Steely Dan just embracing wholeheartedly the decadence because Asia, they're kind of like, "Eh, I don't know about this. I wish I was in New York, but in Gaucho, it's like, okay, get the girls. We're getting in the car. It's a few years later. They've become (laughs) accustomed to the place. It feels like another home to them at that point. You know, it's just how it goes. The arc of things, you know, you, you start the arc at bad sneakers where you're like, oh, I fucking hate this place. but We got to be here. And then you end yeah. up at Glamour Profession where, you know, you've gone native a little. Yeah. It's like meet me at midnight at Mr. Chow's. Yeah. That's, an, that's another thing you can have as part of your uh, Dan Pilled <laughs> summer uh, checklist. Got to get the Shaywan dumplings. <laughs> got to get the Szechuan dumplings.
So this is the end of Steely Dan Mach 1, and now we're going into an album that you and I both consider as canon for Steely Dan that we really haven't talked about enough, and that's uh, the 1982 Donald Fagan solo album, The Nightfly. And the first song on the record was IGY. The IGY of the title refers to the International Geophysical Year, which was an actual event that ran in July of 1957 until December of 1958. The IGY was an international scientific project that promoted collaboration among the world's scientists. So it was this kind of cultural event that would have captivated the young Donald Fagan growing up in suburbia. Standing tough under stars and stripes we can tell This dream's in sight You've got to admit it at this point in time That it's clear Looks bright on that train of graphite and glitter under sea by rain. Ninety minutes from New York to Paris, well, back 76 will be a okay. Well, I was thinking about this song, uh, because we'd already picked out the king of the world and. That is basically the opposite of IGY. IGY is a song that is really about uh, an optimistic vision of the future. It is a vision of like, we're, it's a a utopian vision of the world. And, you know, the chorus, you know, really reflects that. What a beautiful world this will be. What a glorious time to be free. Um, And, you know, he's singing this as an adult, you know, kind of knowing how things would turn out. Mm-hmm. But still, like, kind of like, I think he still wants to believe in this optimism of the post-war period, the you know the optimism of his childhood. But you know, at the same time, you know, in the same childhood, you have that fear of nuclear annihilation. Like a few songs later on the same album, you have the song "New Frontier," which is about you know this the the. Uh, fallout shelters just being a, a day-to-day part of reality where you're just like, you know, fuck, we'll have a party down there. Invite the girls over. Yeah. In the lyrics for IGY, um, they really do sort of encapsulate what Fagan's up to on this record because it is a, a recollection of his childhood, but it is from the perspective of somebody who got to grow up and uh, realizes that you know the future that he was afraid of, and the future that he thought would happen, uh, they weren't really what he expected. Uh, the thing that it says in the liner notes, uh, along with the lyrics, is note: the songs on this album represent certain fantasies that might have been entertained by a young man growing up in the remote suburbs of a northeastern city during the late fifties and early sixties, i.e., one of my general height, weight, and build. Which is him, you know, kind of somewhat embarrassed to say, like, this is uh, me doing autobiographical songs, whereas the Steely Dan songs, not so much. My most personal record yet, as the uh, you would say in the record industry. Yeah. Um, I always thought of these lyrics as being like he lifted them from a brochure that he picked up at the World's Fair about the exciting vision of the future that they were pushing in the late 50s, like 90 Minutes 
Undersea by rail, 90 minutes from New York to Paris, while by 76 will be A-OK. <laughs> Remember, in 1976, uh, Donald Fagan and Walter Becker made the royal scam. <laughs> you know, like that's the future that he was sold when he was little and he had this sort of optimistic idea of the future. No wonder uh, he would later grow up and write only a fool would say that. That's what yeah. I was thinking, that this like is like this, an ironic I, I, sequel. I really like the idea that he, after doing all that Steely Dan stuff, he wanted to reconnect with this more innocent worldview, but through the perspective of that cynical guy. Definitely. Uh, do you also know that like the, 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 his, the, his uh, first three solo albums are basically like uh, looking at his life from different phases of it? So his childhood is the Nightfly, his... Uh, adulthood is Kamakiriad and then the middle age is uh, Morph the Cat. I was reading also that IGY is still a song that audio technicians use a lot. Um, this guy named Clive Young of Pro Sound News said that IGY is the free bird of pro audio. He said that almost every live sound engineer uses this song to test front of house's system sound response when they're setting up for concerts. Yeah, as if any concert is going to be as pristine as IGY. <laughs> but it's like, yeah. you got, this is the baseline for like your perfect setup, you know? Like, yeah. It was one of the first albums recorded fully digitally. I also read that it took eight months. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I think for, for a lot of reasons, just like the all the moving parts, but also I think, I think when Donald's without Walter and I guess that's really, he's really truly without Walter now since Walter passed mm-hmm. away. But I think he feels a bit rudderless without it. And like he, it, it definitely takes him twice as long to get the stuff done. You know, having a partner really expedites the process. Uh, this is basically a Steely Dan album without Walter Becker. Like it was produced by Gary Katz. It was engineered by Roger Nichols. It was mixed by Elliot Schnott. Shiner. Yeah, you have you have a lot of like the same players. You know, you have Larry Carlton, you have Jeff Procaro, just a, a lot of the, the the same people who are on those Steely Dan records just a couple years before. And the one thing that seems to be missing uh, is the sort of the more sardonic and sort of mean, what we would call mean spirited uh, stuff that I guess Walter Becker brought. Like you know, he was a little. Uh, Walter Becker was sort of the more of the sour puss, I suppose. There's, this album isn't all that sour. Right. I, I'm not as familiar with Walter's solo material. I haven't really put in the time there, but mm-hmm. it is like significantly more wry. It's significantly more dark humor. Mm-hmm. Um, like Walter is really not going to give you like this window into his childhood and his, you know, he's just not going to do that. He's a more withholding guy. Whereas I think the the part of the beauty of the Nightfly is that you really get to have Walt. Uh, I'm sorry, you really get to have Donald be a little uh, vulnerable, and not in the way that a lot of other musicians might be. But he's still like mm-hmm. letting you in. He's still giving you idea of, like why he is the way he is. I, I think mm-hmm. he's it's 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 more like a superhero origin than like oh, let me tell you about these emotions I had. Yeah. One more thing about uh, IGY and kind of connecting it to uh, that uh, people using it as a <laughs> as uh, an audio standard is I really love the way that song just has this really kind of like there's a whole 
type of song that in my mind I was like, oh, this is this song that's making me think of like really good air conditioning. And IGY yes. <laughs> has a really great, like crisp air conditioning feeling to it. Like all of the keyboard parts, it's it's so clean, it feels so chill and breezy it's you know even like i was walking around yesterday and it was quite hot in new york i was listening to igy and it it just felt like i was bringing some coolness into me just by hearing it yeah it's a really great record i mean you know when i was loading up on finally getting all the steely dan albums on vinyl i had to grab the nightfly along with everything else because i consider it the eighth steely dan record even without walter becker yeah i think i think increasingly that that's just generally how it's seen i mean it's one of you know when steely dan do like the um the new york city residences at the beacon theater and i guess they've also done it in like boston philadelphia uh it's one of the records that they'll play in its entirety Mm-hmm. But there's like Steely Dan records that they wouldn't do that with. We've we've covered that last time. Like they they won't ever do Katie Lied. But yeah, you know, it was really fun to see of- them play the that record in full. Uh, the Night Fly. That oh, speak you know, speaking of which, that was the show where I saw like uh, Michael McDonald just came out and did songs with them. Oh, beautiful! Got see, I got I got to see Michael McDonald sing Peg. <laughs> That's the dream, man. Uh, I want to talk about the title track for the Night Fly too. Um, I love the title track. It's a great song. It's another song that sort of has a radio setting that was made for the radio. And when I was thinking about what we were talking about in Dan Pilled 1, or I was thinking about what we talked about in Dan Pilled 2, that, uh, you know, jazz stations would put Deacon Blues on to buy the uh, DJ a few minutes to go have a cigarette. And to me, the Nightfly is from that perspective of that late night jazz station DJ, you know? Right. And I, I, I think like on top of that, this like the, the character himself is kind of a Deacon Blues type where he's mm-hmm. just like this uh, like a slightly glamorous loser. Uh, he's a radio host. He's taking calls from people he hates. He's yeah. throwing on jazz songs he likes. You know, it's, he's a bit misanthropic. I'm last of the night flight. Hello, Baton the song it has a, a it's real smoothness to it but you know it's full of and i think even got that, that chorus which sounds almost like a, like a radio station bumper where it's like an independent station wjz with jazz and conversation from the foot of mount bozoni uh you know it just sounds like it's a like a, like a jingle that they play every hour or so yeah um, but it's still kind of like self-effacing <laughs> An advertisement that I saw in Billboard shortly before the album's release uh, was promoting the record, and it said, At 4.09 a.m., silence and darkness have taken hold of the city. The only sound is the voice of the nightfly. <laughs> and, you know, I'd say that the nightfly character in the song is a minor surrogate for Fagan. Like, he's kind of 
making fun of the call weirdo callers that are phoning in. Like he says, we wait all night for calls like (laughs) these, like Fagan has a sort of arm's length relationship with his fans. Like I've read some stories where, you know, Fagan's kind of annoyed at all the senior citizens that are in the front rows at Steely Dan shows, you know, like the book. (laughs) (laughs) And then like, like, if if you're too young, you're a, a TV baby. Yeah. But, I mean, th- I yeah. mean that's a kind of literal on the cover of the Nightfly, where he is like physically embodying that character. He's in front of a radio mic. He's got the cigarette. He's got a record player in front of him. Like, a, like, a, like a miserable, glamorous figure. He looks peevish. I guess. I mean, honestly, there's not a lot of photos where Donald doesn't look peevish. But you know, <laughs> well, he, he's pretty handsome on the cover of of the Nightfly. Except, you know, he's such a sourpuss most of the time but you know they really glammed him up and made him look like the 50s on that album cover but yeah a little don draperish even yeah yeah for sure but i have to say i find the midsection of the night flies very moving and very confessional and this is, relates to what i'm going to say next about fagan in the middle of the night fly he says uh something that you're not quite sure whether or not this is for his radio listeners or for us But once there was a time when love was in my life. I sometimes wonder what happened to that thing. The answer's still the same. It was you. I don't know who that's for, but I think that's very, I think that comes right from Fagan's heart. heart. I think yeah. there's somebody in his life that got away. And I know that Fagan went into a depression after he recorded the Nightfly. He said that it was the culmination, quote, of whatever kind of energy was behind the writing that I had been doing in the 70s. He felt that um, he revealed too much of himself or that he actually exhausted everything that he had to say musically into that record. And he went into a psychological retreat and it was not helped by the fact that the record didn't perform as well as everyone was expecting. This was his first uh, record for Warner Brothers Records. And in fact, Gaucho was supposed to be the first record on that Fagan was going to do for Warner Brothers. There was this three-way fight between MCA, Universal, and sorry, between um, Universal and what label was he on before that? What label were Steely Dan on first? Were they on MCA? They were on ABC. Right, right, right. So there was yeah. this three-way fight Asia between ABC. ABC. Yeah, ABC, but Gaucho, one of the reasons why it was delayed and released was because there was a label war between Steely Dan trying to make a lateral move to Warner Brothers and Universal buying ABC records and then holding them to a contract. So... And and perhaps maybe the problems with Fagan were a problem for Warner Brothers too. I mean, when Steely Dan dissolved, that was when uh, Becker was a real train wreck. So I don't know, but I think Fagan was very disappointed by the um, experience of making the Nightfly, and that might um, explain why we didn't hear very much from him for many years. You know, the 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 information you're just dropping there about just like the contracts and all that, it definitely gives a lot of explanation for why. 
both the night fly and gaucho have like these ridiculous budgets because mm-hmm. they this have the uh the leverage to do that and just the signing mm-hmm. bonus probably yeah i mean maybe maybe um becker wasn't part of the deal <laughs> if uh fagan was gonna jump labels because he was a liability at that point i mean gaucho was a yeah. train wreck but, i mean it makes sense it, i mean it makes sense that the uh, the label would have a high expectation of gaucho because you're coming after asia which is like this commercial smash and then gaucho does pretty well so you're like okay well you know let's see let's see what happens with the nightfly i think the nightfly is a, a it's one of the best recorded records i've ever heard in terms of just quality of the recording and it's a beautiful record and i think any danologists uh who want to hear more steely dan but may have not uh made the leap into their year 2000 stuff should really check out the nightfly because it basically is a steely dan record yeah i want to give a shout out to a thing on youtube Uh, there's this youtube series called from the bottom uh, this guy who's a bass player, and he kind of talks about uh, classic albums in terms of the bass players on them. Uh, but they have a they have an episode of From the Bottom about the Nightfly. Uh, it's a celebration of the five uh, god tier bass players who appear on that record: Anthony Jackson, Chuck Rainey, Marcus Miller. Uh, that's off the top of my head, but <laughs> there's there's more. There's two more. Uh, but yeah, that's if you want to really get deep into uh, some of the the more subtle genius of the of the Nightfly, I recommend checking that out. I'll add that link to the show description. And and to wrap up this uh, Dan Pilled summer, I think we should jump ahead to the post. To I think we should jump ahead to the post twentieth century period. The uh, or, or really just like the just the the dawn of the twentieth century. Yes. Let's well, talk about the very twenty first le- century. Yeah, <laughs> the dawn of the twenty first century. Dawn In the year two thousand. <laughs> Let's talk about the very first song from Two Against Nature, the opening track, "Gaslighting Abbey." the The it, best it, thing that you can say about it is it picks up basically right where Gaucho left off. Yes. Well, and also just like speaking of Danfield Summer, the opening line of, of the song is "One plush summer, you came to me ripe and ready." <laughs> That's how you got to be in Danfield Summer. You got to be ripe and ready for sure. Oh yeah, got to be a plush summer. So we, we mentioned this in passing on, uh, I think, the first one we did, that the thing with uh, the, the last two Steel Aiden records, but especially Two Against Nature, is that they really kind of shift some gears into, like, the lyrics kind of move, like, into, like, kind of a farcical satire. And mm-hmm. there's uh, there's nine songs in this record, and I think, like, seven of them are, are, are just about like an older pervert who is just like causing trouble and, you know, is being really gross to younger women. 
Uh, And Gaslighting Abby is specifically about, you know, finding this girl and literally trying to drive her crazy so they can control her. And they'd say, I mean, and, you know, Flame is the game they call we call at Gaslighting Abbey. It's a luscious invention for three, one summer by the sea. And like he's just, it, the, the, it's so flippant. Like the character is talking about this being absolutely monstrous in the most casual way. It's just a, you know, it's just another game we like to do. You know, I, your, your interpretation is interesting. I would, uh, that, that, um, that it's a couple that have conspired to like ruin a third girl. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. Sh- I, I should say that. Yeah. It, 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 it's a game we call Gaslighting Abbey. So, yeah, it's just like this weird. It, it, I guess the implication is, is this weird kink this couple has. I like your your interpretation of it. Maybe I, maybe I was a little more straightforward. I thought that it was about a man who was having such a good time with his mistress that they were conspiring together to drive his wife, Abby, insane so that they oh, could be together. OK. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense, too. But your 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 idea is a little more pervy than mine. I kind of like <laughs> yours better. <laughs> but I feel like in either way, it's the uh, the idea is that two people are getting off on fucking with the other person. So it really could be the couple, or it really could be the guy and the mistress, and it's it, it's still like they're bonding over this cruelty. One thing I can say about Two Against Nature is that I don't, I was not really, maybe I got to keep on listening to it. It didn't really grab me as like particularly imaginative and, uh, you know, leaps of faith in terms of song construction uh, as previous Steely Dan stuff. Like it seemed a little bit more conventional sort of jazz rock. I find the chord changes and stuff in Gaslighting Abbey to be what one would expect from Steely Dan a little bit more than the rest of the record. I think it was wise of them to start the record with this track. Yeah, I feel like it's it's not like too far removed from Black Cow, this one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still kind of slowly absorbing the last two albums. And it's, you know, it's kind of the thing of like, I want more Steely Dan. There's not going to be more. So I really have to dole out the remaining Steely Dan for myself personally, my own experience of it. Um, but you know, what is very funny that I was thinking about is um, the provocateurs that Steely Dan are uh, that when this album was a new album, I knew there was a song called gaslighting Abbey. And I sort of knew what the term gaslighting meant, but it was not common currency in the language the way it is now. Like everybody knows what gaslighting is now, but in the year 2000, uh, it was probably a local term. Like Fagan said that he had only heard that term in New York city at the time that he wrote the song, but now everybody understands when they're being gaslit. Oh yeah. I just, Girl boss I think it's can't keep ga- gaslight. <laughs> yeah. Do they have a song called girl boss on, uh, on everything must go? <laughs> Uh, if only they did. <laughs> I mean, they have a couple songs that are kind of about girl bosses. So I think they, they were kind of seeing the future a bit in that way. But yeah, yeah. I mean, and this is, I mean, the the way they're using gaslighting is in like, you know, the way it's meant to like referring to the the movie. Uh, who made that movie? Do you happen to know offhand? Yeah. Gaslight is a famous melodrama by George Cukor um, about a man who is trying to drive his wife mad. And one of the ways that he's doing it is by, you know, dimming 
the lights and making noises and then telling her that there is no, you didn't hear any noises. What are you talking about? Like he's, he and his mistress are trying to drive the wife crazy. And that's what I presumed gaslighting Abby was, was that it was a modern rewrite of that. Although I like your sleazy version better. Yeah. I, I have a friend, uh, the, the film critic, Abby Bender, and I know that she truly hates this song. She likes Silly <laughs> Dan, but truly, truly hates this song. Understandably. Well, you know, we've managed to do three episodes about Steely Dan without referring to toxic masculinity, but I guess it, you know, that is there. I always give Steely Dan a pass in terms of the sort of like cruelty that they uh, depict that it's not so much that, that these are the kinds of guys that they are as much as that they know how guys like this operate and they understand them to a certain extent, you know? Right. I think especially on two against nature, the whole point of the record is that these guys are pathetic that these guys are awful and, you know, many of them entirely lacking in self-awareness and, you know, you're supposed to get like a dark humor to it. Yeah. I mean, whereas, I mean, I think that that really is a difference between those later ones and the other ones. Cause I feel like the, the, the original run Steely Dan, the characters are more, uh, even when they're really despicable, there's, there's still a, there's a slight aspirational quality, yeah, but that is absolutely absent from the last two Steely Dan records. It's only losers, the true losers. Yeah, you know, and and maybe we should uh, put a put a period on Dan Pilled Three by talking about the fact that on the night of the Grammys in February of two thousand and one, up against the Marshall Mathers LP, up against Midnight Vultures, up against Kid A, album of the year went to Two Against Nature. Yeah, I mean the the last two, two of my favorite records. <laughs> yeah, I love the I love those records too, but Steely Dan beat them all and it was their first Grammy as a band. Asia won a Grammy for best engineered album non-classical, but this yeah. was the first time that they ever won. And I saw this really funny uh recap in the New York Times of the event uh where they because everyone was shocked. Nobody knew nobody young knew who Steely Dan was. Nobody who was obsessed with Napster knew who Steely Dan was. But the New York Times in their recap of the event wrote, the top winner when the 43rd annual Grammy Awards were presented tonight at the Staples Center here was an album about incest, statutory rape, threesomes, and drugs. But it was not by the rapper Eminem. No, Eminem is much more pure than that. Um, Although I think some of that might be alluded to at Midnight Vultures. Um, I mean, also a beautiful thing about that is like it really speaks to how the Grammys work. Where a lot of times, an award like that, it's ultimately a lifetime achievement award yeah. that is pegged to the most recent work. So, yeah. like that is absolutely like all of the record producers and session players and musicians who all are on the voting body of of the the Academy, all being like. Steely Dan, one of the best to ever do it. New record, very good. Let's do it. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, but then, like, you know, years later, Beck finally wins it for a similar, like, kind of like footnote record in his career, Morning Phase, which yeah. is, you know, it's a fine record, but it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's similarly a comeback record. He had not made an album in uh, several years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's basically he just repeated the pattern. And I would not be surprised if uh, Radiohead eventually get this for maybe even the next Radiohead record, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and, and at the same time, when, when Beck won that award, he uh, was upset. Like everyone would have wanted uh, Beyonce to win. I think it was Lemonade. 
No, no, it would have been the self-titled one. Uh, but, you know, Beyonce will eventually uh, get that award for a record that is not as good as her uh, top records. Yeah, but I mean, it was about time that Steely Dan won some Grammys and, you know... It, as yeah, it's a it's a thing, they were isn't it? You, you win for your <laughs> not for your best work. Yeah, they were stubbornly unavailable for a long time. So, <laughs> do you think that also the fact that Steely Dan won was some kind of weird message from the establishment as the music industry was changing and downloading and illegal downloading was changing? Like, and the idea of, of records not being albums anymore but MP3s. No, I don't think so. I really, truly believe that it was mostly just the goodwill of the voting body and like who was in the voting body at the time. Because any of these awards, any like magazine, like best of lists, it's all determined by who happens to be in the voting body, who decides who gets to be in that voting body. You know, I, I, I've been in a, some of these voting bodies like the, the you know, so recently, uh, I guess last year, the uh, or earlier this year, there was the Rolling Stone like they, they redid the top 500 albums of all time. And I was in the voting body of that, along with, you know, Beyonce and some other people who are uh, have a wildly different experience than I do. Um but yeah, I mean, and I feel like that's a good list, but partly because they really put in the work to try to make that as diverse a body as they could. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, two Steely Dan records are in there. Uh, Asia and Can't Buy a Thrill. I voted mm-hmm. for Asia. <laughs> so, yeah, but yeah, I mean, like any of these things, it, it really just depends on who's there. And at that point in time, in like the year 2000, the year 2000, <laughs> uh, it was definitely a lot of like music business career people. <laughs> yeah. And it's sort been, of, and, yeah. Or, and this like musicians and uh, like recording engineers and all the people who would be predisposed being like Steely Dan, they rule. Well, you know, it's great that Dan Pilled 3 ends with me finally liking a song from two against nature you know maybe yeah. I, maybe the thawing is beginning and i'm starting to get it but you you, <laughs> you thought we should nine is where we just dan pill nine is everything <laughs> must go which we, you know, we went like chronologically through, chronologically through the career of like eh, let's not do everything let's go <laughs> i know nobody talks about that one but and that yeah. was not a digital record either that was analog i i read yeah but yeah great yeah. drums on it keith carlock yeah, well, you know, this will be this will be a sign of the of uh, like, I guess to close the show, we should talk about like what do you have to do to have a real Dan Pilled summer, in your opinion, Matthew? Like, how can you make it happen? If you, we've we've we're now out and about again. We're out on the streets in our bad sneakers. We've got our pina coladas. What do we need to do to make sure that Dan Pilled summer lives up to its potential? Hmm. Well, I think, as I was saying before, I think, like, you know, just uh, keep your expectations low. You know, just try to have a good time. Don't let the, the, the darkness of the world bother you too much. Just try to have, like, a wry outlook on it. Uh, but I think also, like, you know, you want to take in a lot of sensual pleasures. Uh, and you're free to define those as you will. 
but uh yeah i think you you want to you don't want to be shy with that you shouldn't be uh it's definitely not a straight edge vibe it's a glamour profession the la concession yeah i i wouldn't recommend uh doing too much of a two against nature <laughs> i wouldn't emulate any of those guys but <laughs> um if you can work the saxophone you should work the saxophone yeah yeah, if you're going to drink scotch whiskey all night long and die behind the wheel, uh, you didn't hear it from us. That's your decision. <laughs> I mean, you should definitely get some uh, some good bootleg Steely Dan uh, apparel, which is all over the internet right now. There's at least four or five major providers at the moment. Uh, yeah, I was, stunned. I was stunned at all the Steely Dan t-shirts that are available now that are, of course, all unauthorized. Right, and I think it speaks to uh, to Donald and Walter's uh, estate that they're not shutting it down because I think they're very wise to see that this is doing them a lot of favors. You know, a lot of uh, you know, just having these things be out there in the world, having these things be memes, it just puts them as part of the conversation. It, it, I think probably a lot of people have discovered Steely Dan through these means, you know, or just, or if not discover them, like get the impression of Steely Dan's a cool thing that cool people like, you know? Yeah. Um, Oh, one of the, uh, the people who are putting out, uh, Steely Dan merch is, uh, I want to give a shout out is double wonderful. Uh, yes. Who do these things in drops and they, they had a really good, uh, glamour profession t-shirt. Uh, there's one hat that I, I wish I could have had, which is just like this beautiful white hat with this, with the gaucho logo on it. Yeah. Would have loved to have had that one. You'll see me out on the streets this summer, listeners, in my Steely Dan Joy Division t-shirt. And uh, please be kind to me if you do see me. Like, you're welcome to shake my hand. You're welcome to high five me. But don't throw me in front of a bus. That's all I ask. <laughs> that would be a harsh damn cold <laughs> summer. Um, I think, you know, people, if they have ideas for what would make a good Dan Pilled summer or how they plan on getting uh, this, this uh, now that they've been Dan Pilled, how they want to celebrate the summer, they should let us know. Use the official hashtag Dan Pilled Summer. It's out there. Let's try and get it trending this week. Yeah. And, you know, we were being coy about it at first, but we're, we're, we're planning on doing some more Dan Pilled. I think we're just basically going to go ping pong between these two podcasts. And uh, I don't know, maybe eventually we should just get a feed for it and just do it infrequently. But uh, at some point, you yeah. and I are just going to start a Steely Dan podcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we already have, I think. But uh, yeah, we, we, we have ideas for a couple more episodes at least. So. Well, Matthew, I'm just so glad to have made your acquaintance because, uh, you know, the Steely Dan obsession that has been festering in my brain for a while only got worse <laughs> after getting to talk to you. Yeah, I mean, it really is a mind virus. Like once it goes in your head, it, you're never getting it out. It's only going to get deeper. And the thing is, it's effective. Like we we found our fellow Dan heads out there. We've heard beautiful testimonials to like – you know, this one guy uh, t wrote me yesterday and he said that I told my dad about your Twitter account because you're a good Toronto politics guy to follow. And he's been listening to Steely Dan for three days straight. <laughs> like he wound up getting inadvertently Dan pilled just by looking at my Twitter account. Yeah, that's just, that's how it goes. But that's how that's how it'd be. 
But uh, yeah, no, there's probably going to be at least one more Steely Dan episode. And, you know, you should come on the show sometime to talk about anything else. But uh, yes, yes, I would and, be happy to. Until then, uh, I guess the Steely Dan obsession continues. Um, where can people find you on Twitter, Matthew? Um, I'm at Perpetua. And uh, people can uh, find Flux Blog, fluxblog.org. And the podcast is Flux Pod. That's on all the major uh, podcast platforms. I got a, a really nice compliment from a friend of mine who said that one of the things that he loves about my podcast is he, he's discovering from my guests all these other incredible people to follow and incredible pods. And he specifically said that he loved yours. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Um, so I yeah, the love him, of- but also I thank you for relaying the information. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a, I'm a glutton for compliments, dude. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, well, I guess we'll just have to, to wrap it up for here. Cause we've, we've, uh, we've got so much under our belt and we'll have probably, and the other, the other, uh, tragedy is there's still a few more Steely Dan songs worth talking about that we didn't even get to with three episodes. Oh, so God, I guess yeah, I mean, we've been saving a few, you know, yeah. but, I mean, I think if you kind of do the math on it, you can figure out there's at least two major classics we haven't touched yet until next you gotta time. keep the show going. And again, if you've been Dan pilled, uh, please tell us. We love to hear it. Yeah. We love to see it. Yeah, and if you, and you know, and if if you feel that there's some people in your life that you can kind of Dan pill through these episodes, passing them along. I think we're. I think we're. Uh, I think. I think. I think we're creating a very effective Dan pilling mechanism. <laughs> You know, you could very well wind up talking to Donald Fagan on FluxPod, you know. Oh, God, I, I would love to. He, and uh, I've, I've heard like great. <laughs> I think he's a man of few words. <laughs> oh, no, no, he's he's pretty talkative. Uh, I think okay. it's just like, you know, he, he's selective about who we might want to talk to. I'm not sure if I, I meet the uh, the standards that he might put forth. But. <laughs> well, I, I read this funny interview with uh, Fagan from a few years ago with said, where the interviewer said, so you've had a real influence on a lot of hip hop music. And he said, I don't know anything about hip hop. Sorry. <laughs> Just yeah. shut this, sh- shut it down. <laughs> yeah. That, that's the kind of interviewee he is. But I feel like that's a, uh, I feel like I would want to be that kind of interviewee if I had uh yeah, I think you I mean, especially when your you're, you get these questions where like, I don't have a good answer to that. This, can, this is, this, this is zip path. What, next one. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for joining me. And I guess we'll do it again sometime. Yes, we will do it again. That concludes this supersized episode of Junk Filter, but we'll have another regular edition in the next few days. Please like and subscribe to the podcast if you're enjoying it. Please tell your friends. Please do consider becoming a patron. We have bonus episodes regularly, and the link to our Patreon is at our Twitter account, which is JunkFilterPod. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawken. Thank you so much for listening. Music